what I notice is that there has been a shift in the last few years um, amongst medical people and uh, psychologists to actually question the amount of mental health uh, stuff that we are diagnosing and to ask, are these diagnoses, diagnoses warranted? And are we not over-diagnosing people with bipolar disorder, people with schizophrenia and so on? Are we not over-diagnosing and medicating them and you know numbing them out? Because so many of these conditions have been created by trauma. The problem about trauma is that uh, trauma has not been very available to doctors in terms of mainstream information. You're listening to Take Regular Breaks, the positive mental health podcast empowering you to find balance in all aspects of your life. I'm Tanya Diggory, and today we'll explore the mind's role in healing the body with Dr. Melanie Salmon. Welcome everybody to this episode. I'm joined by Dr. Melanie Salmon today. Melanie is a medical doctor, gestalt psychotherapist and trauma specialist and trauma release exercises trainer, also known as TRE. Dr. Salmon has also committed her life to the exploration and practice of healing. During her 40 years in medicine, she became increasingly frustrated with the limited ability for pharmaceutical drugs to treat the cause of health issues, including psycho-emotional conditions in her patients. To Dr. Salmon, it became clear that these problems were related to a dysfunctional nervous system caused by unresolved and unhealed trauma. She decided to leave medicine and in 2008, Dr. Salmon created Quantum Energy Coaching, QEC, revolutionizing the way we approach healing. Her practice combines various modalities, including gestalt psychotherapy, neuroscience, and epigenetics, drawing inspiration from both the traditional and modern. Dr. Salmon is also the author of the book, There Has to Be Another Way. Very apt given the direction that her career has taken. So welcome, Melanie. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. So your background in so many varying practices of medicine is fascinating. What inspired you to dedicate your life to the exploration and practice of healing? You know, everything I've done uh, has its origins in my own story, which is why I eventually wrote my book. But I suffered a lot of uh, trauma as a child. And uh, uh, my mother was dying of cancer, and uh, I was the oldest of four children. And from the age of nine, um, I was trying to look after her, trying to to save her. Um, and uh, and the strange thing was that she, she didn't die; she she kept staying alive. And so I got to the age where I had to choose to go to university, and I thought, well, it's quite obvious I have to become a doctor, and then I can really find out how to heal her. So so that's how it began. It, it really was, you know, I was highly motivated because I loved my mother dearly, even though she was the cause of my trauma. I didn't know at the time, of course. Mm. So, yes, it's, it's very much uh, something I've written about in my personal story. And uh, ju- just uh, so that your listeners uh, can have a bit of interest out of this, my mother actually lived to the age of 94. <gasps> last oh, year. Wow. Wow. <laughs> Gosh, that is quite a twist in the story. It really is. I wasn't sure whether to ask or not, to be honest, unless you offered that information up. So thank you for sharing that. So that's how I became a doctor. And uh, it was only when I was doing, I was studying in third year medicine uh, that I 
my mother told me she had leukemia. Mm. I, I studied leukemia, looked at it under the microscope, and it was associated with certain symptoms, which I knew she didn't have. And and I went back home and I said, what's going on here? You, you know, you told me you were dying of leukemia. And she denied it. She said, I never did. Well, that was almost impossible. But by then I was already well underway in medicine. And you know, I, thought, well, I, I, I really enjoy helping people. But So, so a rather a strange story and, and an interesting one. But uh, I'm quite glad that it, it, it got me on to medical school. That's so profound. And it actually reminds me because I, I love hearing these stories where you, know, you just never know where a diagnosis of cancer is going to take the person, right? It can go so many different ways. And no doubt it's going to be wrapped up in a lot of trauma for the patient, for everybody involved and in their lives. And there was an interview I heard of once um, by Dr. Um, Deepak Chopra. And um, and I'm I'm trying to remember specifically what he said, but what stayed with me was how he talked about the difference between diagnosis and prognosis. And he was like, you know, of course, you you you'll believe that the diagnosis, and that's important to know what that is, but you don't always have to believe the prognosis. And and he was talking about, you know, the people that make these miraculous recoveries or just do not they choose not to believe, you know, in, in what they're going through. And of course it's no, it's not straightforward and everyone's experience of, of that kind of diagnosis is different, but it would, it just really fascinated me. So I'd love to hear your perspective on that too. Well, you know, um, I, I was obviously a very regular sort of doctor. I became a GP and then I worked in the UK for 40 years. Although I come from South Africa, I was a GP in this country. And, um, you know, I I followed the mainstream belief system. I used to give the prognosis that I was told to give when people were diagnosed with cancer, and because I I believed what I was taught, I was you know um, I never really went outside of those lines. Mm. And it was only probably in the last ten years of my work as a GP that I began to question everything because I was seeing that what I was telling people was not the truth. I could see that they were living longer than they were told to live. Mm. And I'll tell you one other really interesting story. So this was a key, a key patient of mine that helped me to start thinking differently. He was diagnosed with, I think it was lymphoma, and I went to see him at home and he came back from hospital because they'd uh, taken out some lymph nodes and looked at them under the microscope and told him he, that he had lymphoma. And the cancer specialist said he had six months to live. And this was a man probably in his early to late 40s with two teenage children and a wife who completely depended on him. And they were so shocked with the diagnosis that his wife couldn't cope and she left him. The daughters went with her and he was abandoned uh, in this process of, of uh, well, we can't, we can't cope with a dying man so we're going to leave. Wow. I saw him for the next six months a lot because I started giving him some counseling as, as a GP. And then after six months, it was the wrong diagnosis. He didn't die. He didn't die. He actually, they, they contacted him and they said, we're terribly sorry. There was a slip up at the lab. You don't <laughs> <laughs> so he had to go and claw back his relationship with his. So I'm. <clears throat> I seriously began to think about this whole thing about prognosis and how, you know, we tend to to, to give uh, the very worst picture uh, at the point of diagnosis. And I think it's 
so irresponsible to do that and so sad because many people will believe it and they will live their lives out to that prognosis. And then they're robbed of the opportunity of all the other methods of healing, like I do now, which don't involve medication, don't involve cancer therapies, where people can actually heal themselves. You know, I, I've been involved with so many miracle healings for cancer that it's quite phenomenal. In fact, I'm doing a seminar next month on the miracles that, that I've achieved with QEC, talking about people with, you know, very bad prognostic mm. Have completely healed themselves. So that's the sad thing about the mainstream and its prognosis package. It comes very between narrow lines. It's not giving the person any leeway for something else. And that's, for me, that's very sad. Yes, no, absolutely. And, and what a story as well about that, that patient you just mentioned. That's um, pretty surprising. <laughs> um, and I guess it's it's an interesting one to get into, and I'm sure there's this is something we could talk about for hours on end. But that 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 the idea of there being a place, of course, for for medicine and for the evolution of um, medical practices and and support, but there also absolutely being this place for holistic support. And um, so, which which is you know what drew me to speak to speak to you today as well, and and to learn more about QEC. So through your wide-ranging experiences, both personally and professionally, as you've just shared, you created this practice of quantum energy coaching. So can you please explain what this is exactly and what the practice entails in practical terms? Okay, so um, I was very frustrated as a GP uh, towards the end of my my 40-year stint um, because my patients were getting sicker and sicker on medication, not better and better. And many of them had come back from, they were, I was in an area in England where there were a lot of people who were coming back from the war zones in Iran and Iraq mm. and they had PTSD, they had a lot of stress and trauma and nothing was helping them, absolutely nothing. And, and my heart was breaking for them and out of sheer frustration I left to find another way but I had no idea what the other way was going to be. I had only one clue and that was from a book written by Bruce Lipton uh, called The Biology of Belief. I don't know if you've heard of it. No, I haven't, but I'll look into yeah. that. Yeah, Bruce Lipton wrote this book. So I read it in about 2006, a year or so after he'd written it. He was a medical doctor, stem cell researcher. And what he discovered, and everything that has followed since then, he discovered that most of what happens to us is from outside. Uh, it, it, the causative factors are outside, not in the genes. It's epigenetic. Mm. And the next thing that he said was that if you want to change anything at all, you can't use the conscious mind to change your behaviors or your thoughts or your limiting beliefs or even your illnesses or your approach to your illnesses. You've got to go to the subconscious level. But he left it at that. You know, he indicated that the subconscious mind was a big computer. Mm. And I was a talk therapist and I was using the conscious mind and I agreed with him because I found that it would take years for people to change. And interestingly, the trauma never did. You couldn't touch the trauma with talk therapy. Mm. So I knew I had to find a way to, to, to develop the subconscious mind into something that, that could be a simple, effective and safe healing uh, process. And I left medicine early. I went out and studied neuroscience, epigenetics, uh, and a whole range of things. I was already a Gestalt psychotherapist. So the Gestalt psychotherapy is the foundation. That's how I talk to a client. 
It's on the basis of inquiry. Tell me your story. Mm-hmm. I want to know more. And I get the client to talk to me. That's the first part, the mm-hmm. first hour. My sessions are an hour and a half. And then the last part is where we take some of the things from the story that you want to change in yourself. But I give you the opportunity to change. I don't tell you how to fix yourself. Mm-hmm. But let's say you say to me, I've, I've, I've never liked myself. From the time I was a child, I was bullied, so I've never liked myself. And I would say to you, imagine if you could have a miracle, because I always use the concept of a miracle to take you to your highest part of your brain. If you could have a miracle and you could change that, what would you rather believe? And then I write down word for word what you say. You might say, I, I, would, I would love myself unconditionally. Okay. So that then is your choice for change, your words. I create the sentence. Mm. And then we use the QEC technique, which creates a gamma, a very fast brainwave. You, you breathe in a certain way. You sit in a crossover position to join the left and right brain together. And then I get you to bring up a feeling of gratitude, which is the highest frequency of all the emotions. And those three together create a gamma brainwave, which is it, it, it's equivalent to an athlete being in the zone. You can right. achieve miracles with it. And then I get you to repeat the sentence that we've agreed on together, and then that goes into your subconscious mind. And that, in effect, changes the wiring in your brain permanently, you see. So that belief that you had of not liking yourself becomes one of self-acceptance, uh, unconditional acceptance from that moment onwards, and you just start to transform. It really is quite amazing. Absolutely fascinating. And um, I was very taken with what you said about gratitude just then as well, about being the highest level of emotion, something like that. Highest frequency. Thank you. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yes, there was somebody called, um, I can't remember his name now, but he was he was knighted for it in England. And he spent 20 years going around the planet measuring different emotional emotional frequencies because he believed that each frequency carries a certain level uh, uh, of energy. So he, he measured them all and he found in the 20 years he went around, he measured 17,000 people from all con- cu- countries, cultures, states of health and ages, and he got the con- same consistent result. So everybody who walked around in anger all the time, talking about the, the dominant thing you walk around in, mm. obviously have momentary other emotions. But if you're an angry person, you'd measure 75. If you're an afraid person, you'd measure, you know, 100. If you're somebody walking around with your head in shame all the time, that's the lowest frequency, that's 20. What he found was that gratitude was the highest frequency of all, and that measured 550. And and all the range in between. It's very interesting. Oh, my gosh, that's that's amazing. Thank you for sharing that and uh, and for sharing your method. I mean, you know, kudos to you. It sounds um, incredibly effective, and I I appreciate the fact that also it's – so, so the purpose behind it, obviously, is is helping people to, you know, have effective tools to heal from past trauma, but also change limiting beliefs rapidly, as you described. Um, and I love how, uh, in several cases, you've, you've previously mentioned to me that it's healed or significantly improved medical conditions such as diabetes and multiple sclerosis as well. Yes, yes absolutely, absolutely. I've been working more and more on. Uh, obviously, I think people 
choose to come to me because I am a, a doctor uh, and they come to me with their medical problems and we use the power of the mind uh, to, to, to improve their medical condition and in some cases heal it altogether. Mm. Uh, you know, certain medical conditions have reached a stage of advancement within the physiology of the body that you can only heal it to, to a certain point. Uh, for example, people who are insulin-dependent diabetics. I remember one man I worked with, uh, he became an insulin-dependent diabetic in his 20s, and I met him when he was 40. And and we worked on, we cleared all the trauma. He came from, he was he went was in and out of children's homes. He was sexually abused. I mean, he had every trauma you can imagine in the book. So this was a very traumatized man. It didn't surprise me that he he, he developed diabetes. And we healed his trauma. And what happened was that he went from 10 injections a day because he was very brittle and unstable mm. to only two a day. He became wow. very stable and he was delighted. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much. I only have to give myself two injections a day. Oh. But we couldn't cure it because by then the, the system, the pancreas, was really quite um, quite damaged. And mm. so we could only go so so far with it. Mm. But still a great result for him. Yeah, absolutely. And and another great example of what we were just saying before about the mm. role of holistic support and the need to explore different modalities as well as the, you know, the necessary you know, medicine or like injections, like in that um, example that someone might need. Hi, everyone. Just wanted to take 40 seconds of your time to mention our mindfulness guides and e-courses designed and curated to help you feel calmer, happier and empowered to regularly nurture your health and well-being. Our four e-courses explore the themes of self-kindness, mindfulness for sleep, stress relief and daily mindfulness, offering a blend of guided audio meditations, movement and breathwork videos, well-being recipes for healthy living and book recommendations. Each e-course is drawn from evidence-based research, guiding you through a healthy, restorative routine that supports your overall well-being, enhancing your effectiveness in work and all aspects of your life. You can find out more by visiting our website, thisiskarma.com. Thank you for listening. And now back to the episode. Science and medicine is constantly evolving. Um, and I'm curious to talk to you a little bit more about mental health. Um, when it comes to diagnosing mental health concerns and managing the effects of trauma on the mind, on the body and on the spirit, how do you see this currently evolving in the medical world in terms of mental health diagnosis? It's difficult to know how it's going to evolve. But what I notice is that there has been a shift in the last few years um, amongst medical people and uh, psychologists to actually question the amount of mental health uh, stuff that we are diagnosing and to ask, are these diagnoses, diagnoses warranted? And are we not over-diagnosing people with bipolar disorder, people with schizophrenia and so on? Are we not over-diagnosing and medicating them and, you know, numbing them out? Because so many of these conditions have been created by trauma. Mm. And the problem about trauma is that uh, trauma has not been very available to doctors in terms of mainstream information. I remember Gabor Mate said not Two years ago, he came out of a conference, and when he was interviewed, he said, doctors don't know the T word. They know nothing about trauma. So that's the problem. I think many many mental health problems are overdiagnosed, whereas, in fact, they root trauma. 
And I work with a lot of mental health problems I, and, and always go to the root cause. We heal the childhood trauma or the sexual abuse, whatever it might have been that that person had, and their mental health problem goes away. It mm. just goes away. And mm. of psychosis is another clear example. <clears throat> My brother, who's younger than me, was uh, stationed in war in Angola, as a young man at the age of 18, he, had, he was there for three years uh, involved in killing in the bush. And he came back and uh, he was an incredibly talented lawyer, but in no time at all he ended up in the mental hospital with a diagnosis of manic depressive psychosis. And they put him in a mental hospital, put him on very strong drugs, lithium and so on. And there was no other consideration that this man's come back from war He's got PTSD. He's traumatized. Mm -hmm. Um, Unfortunately, I couldn't help him. I didn't know any better myself. I was only, you know, in my late 20s and leaving for the UK just then. Mm. Uh, But a few years later, I have to say, when the lithium gave him a lot of liver problems, I visited him in hospital and I said to him, it's time to come off the lithium. I don't think you need it because he would have had another so-called relapse. Mm. And he came off at me some time. Yeah. Well, I think we are misdiagnosing a lot of our mental problems. It's a really interesting perspective. Thank you for sharing that. And I think it is it is really fascinating to explore because, you know, I, I, I know quite a few people who live with mental health conditions ongoing or they've recovered from challenges um, previously. And, you know, let's use bipolar disorder as an example. I know quite a few people living with this condition. Um, some will choose medication and that helps to balance out their mood. Others, medication just doesn't work for them and they prefer to choose, you know, creative or therapeutic interventions, you know, that help them to feel more balanced um, and, and helps them with their um, regulating their moods and or mindfulness techniques. And there's, there's lots of other things that help. So mm-hmm. I think this, you know, this is an important takeaway that it's not a one size fits all when it mm-hmm. comes to mental health diagnosis, right? Absolutely. And I think one of the things that is missed by mainstream uh, medicine, perhaps things might change now, Mm. but what's missed is that the core problem in all trauma is the autonomic nervous system gets switched on in order to deal with the trauma. You know, you've heard of having to go into fight and flight when you have an event, when you have a tiger running at you in the jungle, you mm-hmm. start running away, don't you? Yeah. Or you'll fight if you can. That's that's the autonomic, it's part of our nervous system, which is like the the, the, uh, the root and, and main trunk of the tree for the entire body and all its other systems. So when that system is switched on and it doesn't easily switch off after you come back from a trauma or come back from war, it stays switched on. It manifests as all these kind of mental and emotional and physical disorders. But nobody's healing the autonomic nervous system. Nobody's working with that. That's why we did trauma release exercises because its purpose is to settle down the autonomic nervous system back to a state of relaxation. And that's very effective for trauma as well. Mm, Fascinating. So let's talk a bit more now about your book which was released earlier this year. And huge congratulations, by the way. (laughs) 
so this book is called There Has to Be Another Way. I think we're getting a sense from what you've been sharing with us so far, what has inspired you um, to to create this book. But I'd love to know a bit more. What, what was the purpose behind this book when you started writing it? Was, was there a particular reason? And, and what kind of information can the reader expect to walk away with? Well, first of all, I love writing. And um, obviously, I'm full of stories because I can't help but tell stories. But when I when I was um, in matric, when I was in my final year at school, I wanted to go to university and be a, a writer. That's really my my inclination was towards writing. And but then I had I had this problem of a very sick mother, so instead I went and did medicine for her. And so I've always thought, well, one day. One day I'll be able to write a book, okay, do medicine and you can write later kind of thing. So that was always in the background that fed my interest. And then I got to a point with with the work that I was doing where I felt that I needed to tell my story and to to show how I developed QVC, uh, where it came from and how it healed me. So I actually also share my own QVC work uh, my own personal work on myself, how I healed myself, and you know, for example, with my mother and and the lie that that she perpetrated for whatever reason, I never know why she did that, but whatever was, you know, I was able to completely heal myself, and all of that is is at the end of the book. So, so my own personal healing journey is in there. Uh, how how I developed QVC, a little bit about what it is. I don't teach people how to use QVC in a book, obviously. But I give quite a lot of information so that they know, you know, what kind of story can be healed by by this technique. Mm. It's a very personal story, really. Yeah. And and it helps to understand it on a deeper level because like with any practice that's going to help you psychologically and, and in your body, you need somebody to guide you through that, right? So it sounds like you're giving as much information as you can about it. But of course, if someone wanted to do it, they'd need a practitioner like yourself <laughs> to, um, to to guide them through that. So is it yourself uh, facilitating this method nowadays? Or do you do you train anyone to to facilitate it as well? Oh, I developed a training uh, quite a few years ago. I've been training for 14 years because I, the people who I was um, working with as clients nagged me and nagged me in the beginning. You've got to teach us how to do it. <laughs> so I kind of evolved that way uh, out of uh, sheer passion for it. And in the beginning, it was a very simple, short course. And then I realized, well, they weren't really it wasn't long enough, it wasn't adequate enough to have the confidence to work with clients. And actually, when, when lockdown came, it, it was rather um, a bonus for me because it forced me to go online. And now I can train globally because I can just sit in my own home and I can I train people all over the world. Um, and I can now give the, the length of course that's required. So I give a full course that includes an internship. It's about 20 weeks long. And by the time people come out at the end of the 20 weeks, they can see clients straight away and they feel confident. Mm. You know, so it's 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 now an adequate course. Whereas before it was it's more just titillating, you know, doing the very surface in five days. People didn't feel that they could really work with clients after that. They knew how to understand their own issues, mm. but it really just wasn't enough. Yeah. So yes, I've been training for 14 years, and the last three years has been the full-on 20-week training that, that that produces practitioners yeah wow 
very impressive, Melanie. Very, very impressive. And and huge congratulations again, not only for developing this method and, you know, now sharing it with other people, training other people, but also on um, creating your, your first book. It's your first book, right? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Fantastic. Yeah. What an achievement. So if you were to summarize sort of three top tips, let's say, for healing and recovering from trauma, even if it's just a first step for people, if, if, if someone's listening to this, knowing that they have some trauma they need to work with, what would you say sort of three, three takeaways really for that? It's, it's not easy for people to recognize they've got trauma. That's what I find. Most people who come to me think that they've got something else wrong with themselves mm. because it's so not understood. Okay, mm. so many people will have trauma, but they'll present with a medical illness. Other people will present with a psycho-emotional illness like depression or anxiety. Those are all actually features of trauma. So almost all symptoms, the first thing people need to know is if you're not well and relaxed and in touch with yourself, your nervous system is probably switched on to a trauma pattern. And that can present in a variety of ways from just having anxiety to having an illness or having a, a mental health problem. That's how trauma presents, you see. Mm. So, so the first thing is to get an awareness of what it really is. And this, the second thing is most people don't know what is traumatic, people think, oh, it's that big thing over there, the big car accident or, you know, my brother being shot dead. Yes, those things were considered trauma back in the day when we first thought about trauma, you know, coming back from war. took a long time for them to admit that those Vietnam people were had PTSD, were actually traumatised. So, so the acceptance of what trauma actually is has taken a long time. Now the trauma specialists in the world are saying anything that is disturbing to you, emotionally or psychologically disturbing, that is repeated, especially if it's in childhood at a young age, is traumatic, that it will have a lasting impact on the nervous system. So you could have what you think is just perfectly ordinary childhood but you're getting slapped now and again or you've been sent to your room as punished that is trauma you see so the first is an awareness of what trauma is and uh, and an understanding that it expresses itself in so many different ways so to just start asking the question i wonder whether i'm traumatized and then perhaps doing a bit of research online and learning a little bit about it and then going to speak to somebody who knows about trauma, who's informed, trauma-informed counsellors these days. There are more and more of them coming out. Trauma-informed doctors as well. But, you know, it's no good going to people who aren't trauma-informed because it's almost like it's another category. You know, it's taking a long time to come out of the cupboard. Mm-hmm. Thank you for breaking that down in that way. This is very helpful to hear. And also just to highlight how it has evolved over time and how the understanding of trauma has evolved. That's really important. Well, it's been such a pleasure to speak to you today, Melanie. Thank you so much for your time. And uh, before we wrap up, I want to ask you one more question. Being the Take Regular Breaks podcast, I'd love to know what's your ideal way to take a break? My ideal way to take a break, well, it's interesting because I've developed that very recently when I was in Cornwall, is to go outside, take my shoes off, go walk in the grass, sit under my favourite tree and just look at the sky, connect with nature, deeply connect with nature, 
you know, not eat anything, not do anything. I've always been a doer, but just relax and open myself to nature. And I get, I, I relax beautifully that way. Mm. I wonder if that also comes from growing up in South Africa, right? <laughs> yeah. Which which part of South Africa are you from? Johannesburg. Oh, fabulous. Lovely weather as well. I mean, we've been quite blessed in the UK with weather this year, but uh, <laughs> we're also not very well set up for it in this country. It gets a bit too hot and we're like, ah. <laughs> um, it's been so lovely to speak to you. Um, how can people stay in touch with you, Melanie? How can they find out about you and, uh, and get in touch? The easiest is, is to go to my website. Everything's there, um, including the trainings that I do. And I think this, my PA's address is connected, qbcliving.com. You just write to Anima. If you want to see me, she, she will uh, arrange an appointment with me. Fantastic. Wonderful. Well, thank you again for your time, for sharing your wisdom with us today. It's been a pleasure. Thanks very much. Thank you. Take Regular Breaks is hosted by me, Tanya Diggory, and has been produced by our team here at Karma. Our show is mixed and edited by Jack Baxter. Our original theme music is by Oliver Sudden, and our design is by Longevity. You can listen to our show on Spotify and other popular streaming platforms. For more information on Karma and our mental health and wellbeing services, visit thisiskarma.com. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to connecting with you again soon.